This is hell. So, Will, I saw an ad on TV last night for some prescription drug, and the person who's trying to sell you the drug, who's supposedly a victim of whatever disease the drug is supposed to cure, says to the camera, you know, I thought with this disease, I had a death sentence. But now, with this new drug, I have a life sentence. Oh, <laughs> I don't know which is worse. <laughs> I know, right? I guess it depends on the uh, the confines. <laughs> don't the you conditions. think they should have actually like not phrased it that way? Oh, I'm like, uh, how many people at this ad agency did that line go through? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm I assuming none of them has known, never known anyone who's ever been incarcerated and told you that a life sentence is actually worse than a death sentence. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. Huh. Uh, so now I have a life sentence where I have to deal with this disease for the rest of my life instead of just dying. But do you remember the drug name? Hell no. Maybe that's the whole point. Hell no. I don't know what the disease was either. <laughs> I, I completely blank out on all those ads. I have no idea how they have any effect other than stockholder investment. Man, but I bet the uh, some of the side effects are pretty gnarly, right? With that life sentence, you might have, you know... Right. You know, what's, what's the usual litany of side effects uh, they have? Uh, one of them is uh, do not use this drug if you are allergic to this drug. Uh, yep. I also like uh, this drug will uh, lead to risky behavior, like gambling. Huh. That's my favorite one. All right, well, if, if that's my life sentence... <laughs> that's not so bad. That's not so bad. <laughs> exactly. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell and the great crime that takes place every day. The con played on all of us poor saps here in the United States. The transgression that should offend us all. The breach of faith that has actually caused lawlessness, corruption, and fraud that should be a major scandal. But is not. Is the amount of money the U.S. spends on the military, the amount of money elected lawmakers earmark for the armed forces is staggering in its cost in raw dollars and cents. But the real costs of the massive military budget, which has grown annually since 9-11, despite most other federal agencies seeing resources drastically slashed, well, the outcome of that is underfunded education, Far too expensive health care. A lack of veterans benefits. A shortage in funds to keep local, state, and federal governments actually working and providing services for the public. A shortage of housing and community services to help those suffering in poverty. Dysfunctional mass transportation. And a transportation grid that's falling apart. Under-resourced efforts in international affairs, much-needed spending on science, alternative energy, and the environment as climate change worsens, worker protections completely disappearing, and the safety of our food more likely being compromised while our entire agricultural system starts collapsing. The one that feeds us. Last year, when Chicago hosted its annual air and water show, as they will again this year, unfortunately. An air and water show that highlights military material and a show of force that entertains over a million attendees every freaking year, if not two million. There were reports last year of people not from Chicago, 
being shocked as they entered the city and got closer to the air and water show and saw the large number of tents housing homeless people in the city that have greatly increased in recent years. Those attending probably did not recognize the show, the air and water show that they were going to be attending, was nothing more than a military propaganda spectacle meant to sign up desperate young people unable to find well-paid work with good benefits and all of a sudden becoming new recruits. They also likely don't realize the reason more and more homeless pe people are living in tents in the city. And that is the military spun spending the tourists have come to celebrate. In a few minutes, we will discuss the military-industrial-congressional complex overspending on the military and under-resourcing of every other federal program and what it means for a nation when it prioritizes the armed forces over every other public need. When we will be speaking with Lindsay Kashgarian and Ashik Sadiq, who are co-authors of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies report, The Warfare State. How Funding for Militarism Compromises Our Welfare. Lindsay and Ashik wrote the report along with Alia Lusuegro, also of the National Priorities Project. Find out more about the report at nationalpriorities.org. Follow the project on Twitter at Nat Priorities. Lindsay is program director at the National Priorities Project, where she oversees nationalpriorities.org. Lindsay works at the intersection of military and domestic federal spending. Her work on the federal budget includes analysis of the federal budget process and politics, military spending, and specifically how federal budget choices for different spending priorities and taxation interact. A particular area of focus is how a decades-long policy of outsized military budgets has eroded political will to invest in opportunity and human potential through greater federal support of education, health care, infrastructure and more she got her start as a clinic worker and organizer at planned parenthood in central and suburban philadelphia and led economic development and affordable housing studies at the university of massachusetts donahue institute prior to joining the national priorities project back in 2014 you can follow Lindsay on twitter at Lindsay kosh k-o-s-h Ashik is a research analyst at the national priorities project working on analysis of the federal budget and military spending he is particularly interested in examining how militarized U.S. domestic and foreign policy interacts with efforts to address long-term societal threats like accelerating inequality and climate change. Prior to joining the National Priorities Project, Ashik was the research and digital communications lead and a founding member of the Climate Mobilization. Ashik worked for several years as a research coordinator of a study on PTSD and combat veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan at the Bronx VA Medical Center. And you can find Ashik on Instagram at Ashik underscore Sadiq. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new by you, sir? Just a whole lot of gardening. Uh, it's after Memorial Day, so now you can put all the uh, fussy plants into the ground like tomatoes and basil. Things. Wait, you have to uh, celebrate the war dead before you can do this. Exactly. Um, no, just in our uh, in, in in our region, uh, our our climate region, that tends to be the day where the you know conditions won't get cold enough overnight to make your tomatoes angry. So this is in your plot up on uh, Howard, your public community plot. Exactly. Sweet. Uh, my, so my niece uh, was is growing uh, strawberries, and I found out that 
you the first time you grow strawberries you just let them you can't eat them they're mm. you're supposed to let them die for one year and then when they come out they come out huge and gigantic and yep. they absolutely look delicious so what are you uh, raising right now what are you farming oh, right now oh man uh, let's see anything you've never done before that you're looking forward to it's a new thing this year I'm gonna try out tomatillos oh they make a lot of green salsas and uh, rats love those yeah, yeah. <laughs> rats uh, that's why I have uh, High rabbit fencing around my. Oh really? Pot. Yeah. Oh, good move because yeah, we try to grow tomatoes one year and all the squirrels and rats just eat. The squirrels would just take a bite out of a tomato and then just throw it on the ground and walk away. I had some rats move. Yeah, the squirrels are total bastards. Yeah. Um, I had some rats move into squash one year and so I decided I didn't want the, that that friendly encounter ever again. So. <laughs> You stop growing squash or you put No, I put the them. fencing up, <laughs> okay. yeah, caging up. And it works? Yeah. I mean, you know, there are enough attractive opportunities up there to, to leave mine alone because it offers a little bit more resistance. So what's new by me is what's old by me, and that is we are seeking people to be producers here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in becoming a producer here on the show, email me at chuck at com and tell me why you want to be on the show. We do our best to pay a living wage, and while experience is definitely, uh, you know, appreciated, it's definitely not required. The only thing that is required is is your time, approximately three and a half hours, once a week, and your appreciation for what we try to do here on This Is Hell, whatever the hell that is. So email us at chuck at thisishell.com, or if you want to, you can DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can send us a message via Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio or message us on Patreon or post your interest in working with us on the show on our Discord page, whatever. Just get in touch with us if you would like to be a producer here on This Is Hell or drop by during our weekly This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, which happens at the bar downstairs from us, Carrie's Lounge, located at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood every Wednesday evening. Drop by, tell us you would like to be a part of the crew, and we'll give you a tour of our studio. It's a good time to check out the space because our studio shares it with an art gallery, and there's currently an art show taking place. So drop by, hang out with us in the beer garden out back, and if you are interested in being part of the This Is Hell staff, tell us, and we'll give you a tour of the studio and check out some art while you're at it. Finally, put this in your calendar now, the annual This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party featuring live music, good food, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, as well as the opening of the This Is Art art show. That's all happening at Carrie's Lounge on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 in the afternoon, going all day and likely most of the night as well. That's July 22nd at Carrie's Lounge. If you are an artist or know an artist or simply like an artist's work from afar, share that art with us, and who knows, you or your suggested artist might be in the show. And if you are, we take absolutely no commission from any artist all 100 percent of proceeds from the art go directly to the artist if you're a musician or perform with the band or would like to recommend a musician or musical performers for the anniversary and listener appreciation party send a sample of the music and maybe you will be performing during the party or your favorite band will and we pay what we are told is far more than we should to the performers finally you have something that you would like that you think would be a perfect fit as a prize at our raffle for a show called this is hell tell us what it is and maybe we'll be raffling off whatever it is you donated we've already received a couple of games to give away 
So we've been telling you that we have a game that was donated called Space Cats Fight Fascism. That's cool. But I swear the model portraying the capitalist on the cover of a game called Class Struggle from, perfectly from, the year 1984. The model portraying the capitalist who on the cover is arm wrestling with Karl Marx is none other than the actor who stars in Succession, Brian Cox. I am telling you, if that's not Brian Cox, I will eat my hat and I have several, several hats. So if you are an artist or a musician or know one or would like to suggest art or music for the upcoming party or if you have something you would like to donate to the raffle, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Will, nothing is more important than being a producer on This Is Hell or as important as our upcoming party. Nonetheless, please share with us what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, as always, wins your choice of This Is Hell swag. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter toque, or winter hat, if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can, you can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And if you have our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, you get to pick from all that stuff. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us during today's show at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Will, what's Jeff talking about this week? Jeff lays siege to a Scottish stronghold. <laughs> All righty, whatever the hell that is. Coming up, the U.S. military budget is killing us here in the States as well as people all over the world. Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from how we will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. And we'll tell you what's happening next week here on the show. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell and the moral or ethical crime being committed by lawmakers in the U.S. Capitol is the crime of taking money away from the poor, vulnerable, and suffering, and giving that government aid directly to multi-billion dollar military contractors who rake in massive profits, even when their new fancy, sophisticated weapons don't work. They give that money to the profiteers of war. Here to give us a better understanding of the U.S. military budget and how it affects not only us here in the States, but everyone in the world, Lindsay Kashgarian and Ashik Sadiq are co-authors of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies report, The Warfare State, How Funding for Militarism Compromises Our Welfare. First, welcome to This Is How, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. This is a fantastic report. And also, thanks for being on the show, Ashik. Uh, thanks so much for having us. So let's start with you, Lindsay. Uh, you know, the study finds that in fiscal year 2023, out of a 1.8 trillion federal, uh, 1.8 trillion dollar federal discretionary budget, 1.1 trillion or 62 percent 
was for militarized programs that use violence or the threat of violence or imprisonment, including war and weapons, law enforcement and mass incarceration and detention and deportation. Now, just so everybody understands, because this is a term we always hear, the discretionary budget, and maybe people don't know what it is. I know I didn't know exactly what it was before this conversation, before I had to do the research for this conversation. The discretionary budget is the part of a federal spending that lawmakers control through annual appropriation acts, and it does not include U.S. government interest payments or mandatory spending on things like Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security. Non-defense discretionary spending in 2020 including an order of amount spent, according to another analysis by the National Priorities uh, Project, education, health care, veterans' benefits, general government spending, housing and community services, transportation, international affairs, energy and the environment, labor, science and food, and agriculture. So, Lindsay, first, does the military get money from anywhere else other than discretionary spending? Are they one hundred percent dependent upon what spending they get from lawmakers. It's a very, very small portion of of overall military spending. Almost all of it is coming from the discretionary budget. And you can say the same thing about, for example, K-12 public education um, gets all of its funding from the discretionary budget. So there are a lot of things that have to fit into this particular bucket. So is the money that lawmakers control, the 62%, nearly two-thirds, so 62%, nearly two-thirds goes all to the military. Of all those programs funded by discretionary spending, Lindsay, including the military, considering that the military is the largest recipient, getting more than all other programs combined, is the military the program that is the most dependent on upon discretionary spending? Does the military need more discretionary funds to operate effectively than, say, education or health care? No, absolutely not. Um, mandatory spending, you, you mentioned the big the big things. Mandatory spending is almost completely made up of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, there's a couple other things. Food stamps is mandatory spending. Highway, the highway trust fund that does, you know, highway construction repairs is is mandatory spending. But most of the things the federal government does are actually dependent on discretionary spending. So you look at federal housing programs, you know, if you look at public housing or if you look at um, rental vouchers for for low income folks to afford housing or if you look at uh, public education, like I mentioned, you know, K through 12 public schools, about half of them get federal funding and are dependent on that. Um, and it's really important to them because otherwise they're dependent on local property taxes. And what happens then is you have poor school districts are incredibly underfunded because they don't have high property taxes or high property values. So federal funding for all of those things um, is incredibly important. And the list just goes on. You know, the Centers for Disease Control, public health, um, public clinics, mental health clinics, um, medical research, all of those things are almost entirely, if not entirely, dependent on discretionary spending. So, Ashik, to you, what explains this disconnect that the public must have when it comes to military spending, when they don't recognize that the military spending, that you know, it's a zero-sum game, that uh, military spending in one area, an increase in the military budget, as we're seeing in the debt ceiling talks, an actual increase in the military budget while having all these other social services connected. Sheik, to you, what explains 
the public, uh, the disconnect the public has between military spending and all other spending, all of the other problems that we're having. Why not recognize that the transportation system that's falling apart or the infrastructure system that is falling apart or the underfunded public schools that are having difficulty? Why doesn't the public recognize the connection between a constantly increased military budget and those social services being underfunded? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think it's really largely a question of optics and in, in the media and where the focus is put uh, by um, well, lawmakers. I mean, we keep hearing that the government can't afford nice things or, or necessary things for everyone. And yet we see the militarized spending rise year after year. Um, like as, as we laid out in the report, militarized spending has almost doubled over the past two decades. And this is a time in which uh, social spending has been cut in, in many core programs um, just in the past uh, couple of years. Uh, the, uh, the main priority of the of the Biden agenda was to build back Better, Better Act for infrastructure, like massive investments that would help rebuild a lot of the things you're talking about. And we just kept hearing in, in the media and in, from members of Congress that it was too expensive and that it, most of it didn't end up passing. Um, so I think uh, the disconnect is, um, you know, it comes from a lot of reasons that you've talked about. Uh, there, there's a massive military industrial complex lobby, like all these uh, defense contractors are pouring huge sums of money into making sure that these things are are increased in the budget. Um, there, um, you know, all these uh, security contractors that are invested in increasing prisons um, and uh, border security. Uh, so-called border security. So, so these things keeping the ones that are increased year after year, but you know, uh, poor people don't have a lobby in the same way. Um, th there isn't massive money being poured into it, even though you know many millions millions of people would benefit from that. So, it's it's really a political question of of how to refocus that and get enough people. So, Ashik, just to follow up on that, what do you think that says about the state of U.S. democracy when poor, pe when poor people don't yeah. have a yeah. lobbying organization? What do you think that says about U.S. democracy when poor, when what is needed for poor people to finally be heard by lawmakers is a poor people's lobby? Um, yeah, you know, uh, it's, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot more that could be said about the, the structure of Congress and how members of Congress are responsive to different constituencies, like, uh, you know, poor people, working people shouldn't have to have a lobby. Uh, but I, I think, um, you know, at, at least by just laying out more of this information, hopefully that gives gives more people tools to at least understand that um, a, a lot of the the cases that are made for just more that are made for more militarized spending versus social spending just really don't hold up at all and are not meeting the, the needs of the vast majority of people. Yeah, if if I can add to that, I just say that this is why there's such a dire need for movements that do represent poor people or that record that represent ordinary people. The majority of Americans actually support taking money away from the Pentagon and putting it into domestic needs. Um, so this is one of those situations where what folks in Congress are doing is not representative of what the majority of us actually want. So we need more movements that are representing us. And um, there isn't any poor people's lobby, but there is actually a poor people's campaign. And we work closely with them. And one of the things they work for is to cut military spending and put that spending into social programs that actually benefit people so that we don't have 140 million people in this country who are struggling just to get by while military contractors are taking in billions of dollars and using that to turn around massive profits for their shareholders and multi-million dollar salaries for their CEOs. 
And people can hear our interviews with Dr. Liz Theo Harris, who is in charge of the uh, Poor People's Campaign, is one of the driving forces behind the Poor People's Campaign by just going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking or and searching on her last name, Theo Harris. And uh, we've interviewed her a couple times in the last year with some really great results. So people should check that out. But Lindsay, as Congress uh, stated in its defense spending report released in December of last year, 2022, Defense spending touches every member of Congress's district through pay and benefits for military service members and retirees, economic and environmental impact of installations, and procurement of weapon systems and parts from local industry, among other activities. So, Lindsay, do lawmakers support military spending because the military-industrial complex has insinuated itself into Every congressional district and made every district to one degree or another dependent upon the defense industry. Has the military made it so opposition to defense spending undermines the bottom line of every congressional uh, district? Does every elected official, in order to oppose increased defense spending, have to vote against the bottom line of their constituency? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, This is a real issue. So one thing is you have the military contractors who some of them are getting upwards of 80% of their revenues from the federal government, turning around using those dollars to lobby the same members of Congress who are giving them their funds. So the lobbying and the campaign contributions is a real problem. But you bringing up another really important part of it, which is that they're bringing dollars to districts in terms of jobs. Um, And so for just one example, uh, the F-35 jet fighter, which is made by Lockheed Martin, um, is a multi-billion dollar program every year. Uh, It is billions of dollars over budget. It is years behind schedule. This is a plane that is a total disaster. It has spontaneously caught fire three different times sitting on a runway. Um, So that is, it is not a good program, but it has managed to receive support year after year in Congress, partly because Lockheed the company that makes the jet fighter has sprinkled jobs over at last count that I saw 46 states and more than 300 congressional districts. So they're virtually everywhere. Um, And they can use that to then go in those lobby meetings when they go meet with a member of Congress, they say, hey, don't cut this program or you'll lose jobs in your district and you'll pay a price for that. So that's how they're using it. Um, But what we know, unfortunately, is that if you took those same dollars that we're putting into the F-35 jet fighter or take your pick any other example of military spending, if you take those same dollars and put them into education or infrastructure or clean jobs or uh, any number of other things, we have a study study from the Cost of War Project at Brown University that shows you could get more jobs for the same dollars in those districts by putting them into any of those things, into education or into infrastructure or into clean energy. Um, And so we're really kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by continuing to put those dollars into these particular jobs because that's what the military industrial complex wants. We could actually get more jobs if we shifted those funds. So Ashik, the study also finds that the U.S. spent $16 on the military and war for every $1 that was spent on diplomacy and humanitarian foreign aid. The vast majority of militarized spending was for weapons war in the Pentagon at $920 billion. Only $56 billion was spent for international affairs, diplomacy, and humanitarian foreign aid. Can we simply dismiss this discrepancy in funding 
by saying that, well, war costs more than diplomacy. Is there any evidence that per dollar resources in international affairs, diplomacy, and humanitarian foreign aid are any better at leading to security and stability than military spending does? Per dollar, what is better at securing peace and averting provocations that cause wars? Spending on humanitarian aid and international affairs or spending money on the military? Yeah, that that's a fair question. I mean, there's there's a lot that can be said about U.S. foreign policy and you know what what when and how humanitarian aid or the State Department various functions have have led to less war or not. But I think just the huge discrepancy uh, that you just mentioned, um, like how much of it goes, how much of the funding goes to the military itself, it, uh, is is just so massive in comparison. It's um, and 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 that just creates the basis for a lot of the the buildup to war that we see. I mean, in in U.S. foreign policy, it, it's really like what when all you have are hammers, like everything looks like a nail, and that's just um, the the instinctive drive of a lot of lawmakers is just to increase this militarization that you know makes the U.S. the the biggest force in the in the room on on the world stage. So this is really a big factor that's that's driving, you know, more aggressive posturing toward China and Russia and um, or, you know, e even before the invasion of Ukraine last year, uh, there was this assumption that uh, there would be some kind of major wars building up um, with, with China and Russia as the so-called near peer competitors to the U.S., uh, but if you look at the actual military funding of various countries, the U.S. still has the largest military um, um, and funds its military more than the next 10 countries combined and more than like after the next 10 countries the rest of the world's 144 countries are just um you know almost half of what the US funds its military for so it's it's just a huge huge difference and that's that's what drives a lot of uh, the wars that that the US gets embroiled in or you know re really creates the conditions for well, Ashik, let me just ask you this one a, a quick follow-up then, because when I was reading uh, the study, re reading your report, one of the things that kept popping into my head was that, you know, we underfund things like science. We underfund uh, precautions that we might make in order to prevent the worst outbreak of a pandemic. We underfund those kinds of things because we don't know if or when another virus is going to come along. Yet we seem to have no problem with funding uh, for wars that may never come along. To you, what explains our acceptance of military funding for uh, to prepare us for wars that may never happen, but a lack of funding for uh, science in order to prepare us for pandemics that may never happen? Yeah, I think um, a lot of these big societal crises that really just are the... Um, you know, if if you look at um, any number of objective metrics, I guess, and and think more long term, you, you can you can maybe you can come to the conclusion that okay, the climate crisis is intensifying and causing all these disasters. So maybe that's something we should plan ahead for. Or pandemics, like maybe they're they don't happen that often, but when they happen, they're so devastating. So you know, a few billion dollars for the um, uh, for the CDC maybe could go a long way. But I, I think that kind of long term planning is. Um, you know, seems to fall by the wayside when there are all these immediate threat perceptions that are created that are militarized. So, um, so somehow it, it's it's made to feel to enough people, uh, certainly in Congress, that these are the biggest threats. And there's also, um, I guess, the most profits to be made by these uh, weapons contractors. But again, there's not a, a massive 
lobby of people pouring money into renewable energy in the same way or to you know preventative vaccines yeah the institutional focus on uh the long in the short term instead of the long term that kind of explains that. Uh, and Lindsay, uh, the study finds that the U.S. federal budget allocated twice as much for federal law enforcement, which includes federal prisons, the FBI, and other law enforcement agencies, $31 billion. As for child care and early childhood education programs, $15 billion. So, Lindsay, a recent guest said on our show said that a decision needs to be made on whether there will be a welfare state or a carceral straight state, that those are our two options. And I realize that binaries are often overly simplistic. But through uh, spending, are we, Lindsay, choosing a state that punishes rather than a state that protects? And if so, is funding the carceral state more than the welfare state anything new when considering the history of the United States has funding for the carceral state and its military components always been prioritized over social services? Yeah, um, really good question. The reason we chose that comparison is because early childhood education and childcare have proven to be so important in heading off bad outcomes for people later in life. You know, they can help reduce poverty later in life. They can help help um, produce better health outcomes later in life. They can reduce crime um, later in life. So they're kind of directly related. You know, are we putting in the resources that we need to have, you know, stable citizens in a stable society, or are we just going for that carceral state? Um, and I, you know, I, this is not something that's terribly new, um, but it is taking a new form. Um, we've done other studies that have shown that, um, you know, spending it, the first of all, the, the incarceration rate has gone way up over recent decades. And you can track it back essentially to um, to civil rights. And there's a complicated history of how the carceral state has grown in this country. Um, but we kind of moved from one form of subordination to another with with the carceral state that we have now. So it's not new, but it's shifts. Um, and what we have now is the highest incarceration rate in the world, um, which is just astounding. If you think about all the authoritarian countries that are out there that that were number one, um, it's really it's really horrifying. So what that comparison is intended to show is that we are choosing to invest in that carceral state. We're still investing. We don't hear a lot about the war on drugs anymore. Um, unless maybe it's, you know, sort of fentanyl crossing the border, but we're still investing so many billions into that failed war on drugs. Um, and another theme of this report is how all of this funding, you know, whether it's for the military and war, whether it's for the carceral state and the war on drugs, is that all of this spending is a massive failure. It just doesn't produce any outcomes that any, you know, moral, reasonable society would want. Um, we shouldn't want the high, highest incarceration rate in the world. We should want a society where children have a good enough start that they can move into life and not be in poverty and not be in a position to commit crimes um, because they're, you know, forced into kind of that segment of society and into those um, into those kind of needs and realities that that poverty induces in people. So 
Um, so a big, a big part of it is that we, these are choices we're making, you know, we're choosing the military over diplomacy and you can make the same kind of case for how our military choices have failed with the war in Afghanistan war in Iraq, two wars of choice that just increased instability in the regions where they were. And then on the parallel domestic track, you have the carceral state and the war on drugs that is just increasing instability in the communities where it's most prevalent. You said that we are choosing, though, uh, Lindsay. How much are we choosing that path? Is it uh, lawmakers that are choosing that path, even though that's not necessarily what we approve of, but there's a bipartisan agreement on uh, the process and the path that we are taking? How much are we choosing that path? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great point. So we yes, we societally are choosing, but who's actually doing the choosing? Yeah, it's it's members of Congress. Um, some of those things are better aligned with what people seem to want than others. I mentioned we have polling that shows the majority of people would rather take money from the Pentagon and put it in domestic needs, which is the exact opposite of what the deal that the White House and Republicans in the House of Representatives just worked out. They're taking money from domestic needs and putting it into the Pentagon. So there's a huge mismatch between what folks in Congress are doing and what people, you know, voters and and people who live in this country actually want. And again, it just comes down to their huge interests. We are speaking with Lindsay Kashkarian and Ashik Sadiq, co-authors of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies report, The Warfare State, How Funding for Militarism Compromises Our Welfare. Sorry about interrupting you there, Lindsay. Uh, let's right. let's get to um, Ashik real quick, because you just touched on the deal that was made, and I want to make sure that people get your analysis of this. Uh, Ashik, the study that you and Lindsay wrote, finds, likewise, road, rail, and air traffic safety programs show signs of underinvestment, as became apparent during the FAA system outage that grounded thousands of flights, or the toxic threat created by a train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and many K-12 public schools that are already facing staffing shortages and a student mental health crisis are dependent on federal aid to provide a bulwark against the heavily local unequal funding provided by cities and states. So following the debt ceiling deal that was proposed this weekend, the New York Times reported that relative to the debt ceiling battle that led to an economic downturn back in 2011, the deal, quote, President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy have agreed in principle to is less restrictive than the one President Barack Obama and Speaker John Boehner cut in 2011, centered on just two years of cuts and caps in spending. The economy that will absorb those cuts is in much better shape. As a result, economists say the agreement is likely to inflict uh, is unlikely to inflict this sort of lasting damage to the recovery that was caused by the 2011 debt ceiling deal and paradoxically the new found spending restraint might even help it the next day a chic the front page story of the new york times the headline was how this uh, debt ceiling deal is going to be again absorbed by the economy and the real costs will be to the economy a little bit but that's going to be the real issue. It might hurt the economy a little bit, but that's it. That's who who is going to or what is going to feel the real impact of this debt ceiling deal. Ashik, in your opinion, who do you think is going to feel the greatest impact of this debt ceiling deal? Deal? Would it will it be just the economy writ large, Wall Street? Or who will be will feel the uh, most effect from this debt ceiling deal? 
Yeah, uh, like many deals um, like this, uh, it's going to be, you know, working people, poor people um, in the United States. I, I think whenever we hear the economy uh, referred to by lawmakers or in mainstream media, we should ask whose economy, <laughs> like, wh who are they talking about? Like, often they're talking about, you know, lines on a graph of the stock market or something, which is just about who is profiting from the economy. Um, but that that really doesn't reflect, um, you know, the real needs of most people who are not invested in the stock market. And Lindsay, uh, also on the debt ceiling deal that was made, the New York Times reports on exactly what those cuts might be, but not until the very end of the first article that they first front page article that they had on the debt ceiling uh, deal. And uh, so it takes till the very final three paragraphs for us to finally find out what may or may not be cut. Prior to that, it's analysts and economists from major banks discussing whether this deal is good or bad for the economy. So here's all the Times reports on the specifics of those cuts. Quote, the spending reductions from the deal will affect non-defense discretionary programs like Head Start, Preschool, and the people they serve. New work requirements would choke off food and other assistance to vulnerable Americans. This is lowering the uh, age at which you have to be working in order to receive welfare. Many progressive Democrats warned this week that those effects will amount to their own sort of economic damage. The Times closes by quoting Lindsey Owens, the executive director of the Liberal Groundwork Collaborative in Washington, saying after inflation eats its share, flat funding will result in fewer households accessing rental assistance, fewer kids in, in Head Start, and fewer services for seniors. Head Start, again, is child care for low-income kids and their families. Lindsay, if you have had the chance to see everything that will be cut when it comes to specifics, uh, what does your first glance suggest they are taking aid from, and where are they putting this new money? Is this yet another 21st century U.S. budget of more for the military and less for the poor? Yeah, it absolutely is. So my our initial calculations um, out of this discretionary budget that you know pot that we've been talking about um, in recent the most recent figure we have is that 52 percent of it was for the military. Um, this deal would put almost 56% of it into the military. So that is a direct taking the money from non-military programs and putting it into the military. The, mili the non-military part gets smaller, the military part gets bigger. Um, and, you know, what we know about where these cuts are coming from, the economists who are talking about, you know, whether this is going to hurt the economy, they're talking about things like, is this going to hurt GDP? Is it going to hurt overall employment levels. Now, we don't know yet whether it's going to hurt those things or not, but who it is going to hurt is the people at the very bottom. They're taking they're putting work requirements, new work requirements on food stamps and on welfare, the temporary assistance for needy families programs. They're going to make people who weren't previously subject to work requirements be subject to those work requirements. But most of the people who weren't working under those programs are, first of all, extremely poor. Many of them are in extremely poor health um, and or have disabilities. They have reasons why they're not already working. So even if it doesn't make a blip on the overall economy, it's going to make a huge blip for those people who are struck by those new work requirements or people who aren't able to get their kid into a Head Start program and all of these are people at the very bottom. So it's really kind of looking at where that's coming from and where it's going to, um, rather than, you know, what's going to happen to GDP. 
Ashik, you, your, and Lindsay's uh, study finds that the same legislators who have demanded billions of savings from the discretionary budget also promised to exempt the single largest portion of that budget from any type of debt ceiling deal, and that's military spending from any cuts. Some have indicated that military spending, veterans programs, and homeland security should even receive increases, as it appears that they have, shifting the burden of cuts further onto human needs programs. There are three, these are three of the largest segments of the federal discretionary budget. So, of course, Sadiq, the military budget makes a lot of money for investors and creates a lot of jobs. So the solution would seem to be making, uh, make providing social services profitable, a, a job creator, an investment opportunity like the military industrial complex and the private sector will solve all social problems. However, we have had guests on the show, including uh, the homeless activist Tracy Rosenthal about a year ago today, talk about what they say has become the homeless industrial complex. Financial incentives created by the state to incentivize care for the unhoused have led to those seeking incentives to recognize the need for homeless in a business model that depends upon caring for the homeless. Is the military funded more than social services? Because there's more money to, make, to be made, because a market solution works for the military and leads to profits, but a market solution does not work for, say, homelessness, poverty, old age, or disability, is the military funded a chic by lawmakers because there is money to be made? And if social services are done correctly, nobody financially profits or makes money from helping those who are suffering. That's a really good point. I mean, uh, almost uh, just about half of the military budget goes to private contractors. Um, so that that is incredibly profitable and it's a big incentive to keep increasing it. But yeah, that that same incentive either doesn't exist for social services or it probably really shouldn't. Like when we're talking about government funding, um, you know, traditionally in the U.S. that or around the world, that means public sector, like the government providing services or uh, basic needs. But in the U.S., just uh, privatization has sunk so deeply into government, and um, that's that's kind of the default model. Um, so I, I think when we're talking about a lot of these huge crises of um, like homelessness, inequality, uh, climate crisis, um, there the, where there are profits to be made, um, it may not actually be the best way of of dealing with those those issues versus just providing those services. Um, directly, like with things like housing, um, we talk about um, public housing as a trade-off. Like it, it wouldn't actually cost that much in the scheme of things to provide enough housing to effectively end homelessness. Um, I think it would be something like ten to twenty billion. But yeah, the the profits are not there to be made. And if if we just talked about privatizing the solutions, then um, that that may not be as effective, but that's that's a much bigger question than just the dollar amounts. And Lindsay, uh, you we were discussing earlier the failures of uh, U.S. foreign policy, and in throughout the report that you and Ashik write, uh, you focus on the U.S. foreign policy of either the use of violence or the threat of violence or intimidation through the threat of violence. And you were mentioning earlier how this has not worked out when it comes to the war in Ukraine at this moment. So your study finds spending on the military and homeland security has too often failed to meaningfully contribute to security. Future lead, uh, funding decisions must recognize these failures. 
how have Homeland Security and the military failed at providing security? Because the argument is always going to be, and it always is, I hear it every time, that if you under if you cut funding to the military or you cut funding to Homeland Security, you are making us more vulnerable to war. So does Homeland Security and the military make us uh, does does it provide security or does it make us more vulnerable to war? Yeah, that is that is the counter argument that you hear. Um, this is all supposed to be spending to prevent war. But if you look at where the money has actually gone, it's hard to find that argument valid. So think about our last 20 years. We just in 2021 got out of the longest active U.S. war on record in Afghanistan and when we left that war, um, first of all, it was the first time we left a major war on record and f- military spending actually went up. Um, so <laughs> that's hard to explain. But if you look at that war, Americans know that that war wasn't a, su- a success. That's, you know, polling is clear. Analysis is clear. Afghanistan is not better off. The United States is not better off. The only thing that came out of that, um, that you could argue possibly came out of that was the killing of Osama bin Laden. And a 20 year war was not necessary for that outcome if that's what you wanted. So that war was a massive failure. Um, The war in Iraq was a war of choice. We know now it's well known that we went in under false pretenses. Um, The region as a whole has destabilized. You have war spreading to Syria. You have war spreading to other places. Um, those wars together, there's a new study from the Cost of War Project at Brown University that shows that um, they contributed to 4.5 million excess deaths in the region. So it's a huge humanitarian toll. Nothing about that looks like a success. And that's what the major thing that we have to show for our military spending over the last 20 years. And you can make a similar argument for Homeland Security spending. Half of that budget goes to ICE and Customs and Border Patrol. Those agencies have deported 5 million people in this country, the vast majority of whom had no crime they had committed aside from their immigration um, status. So that didn't make us safer. Uh, It's a bunch of wasted money. It's cost lives and livelihoods for people who are not well off, you know, immigrants to this country, people in the countries that are affected by our wars. Um, And there are more and more examples you can go to, but this money and this approach has not made us safer. And we need to think a lot before we trust the people, the military leaders and the Homeland Security leaders who have led us down this path. And as Sheik, the study also finds that there is also the failure of the Department of uh, Defense to pass an audit with its $848 billion budget in fiscal year 2023. The Department of Defense recently failed its fifth audit in a row. It's the only major federal agency never to pass a financial audit. In an example of the Pentagon's failure to account for its nearly trillion dollar budget in May of this year, it was reported that the Pentagon had made a $3 billion accounting error that affected the weapons it was able to send to Ukraine. The Pentagon does not know where its money goes. So, Ashik, by your estimation, through your analysis, why are lawmakers so willing to provide funding for a department, any department, that fails audits and has no idea about how its money is being spent? Why would lawmakers 
turn a blind eye to that when it comes to the Pentagon, because I seriously doubt they would turn a blind eye to that if it came to, say, the post office. Yeah, that's right. It, it really exposes the lie of the kind of talking points that are made about government spending, uh, like fiscal responsibility, like uh, waste, all these talking points that are raised when social spending is, is in question. But the DOD, like this massive pot of money, meets no reasonable standard at all of fiscal, fiscal responsibility. The, the DOD just gets a free pass that no other part of the government does. Um, and I think... Um, you know, it, it probably comes back to the profits to be made uh, again. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's it's hard to trust an agency that does not even know where a lot of its money is going. Um, and um, this this would never fly if uh, many departments around healthcare or social security uh, were just not passing any kind of audit at all, or when audits are done, um, you know, generals like heads of DOD are making excuses like, oh, well, we weren't expecting it to pass an audit, but it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and they still get billions of dollars more. Yeah, that's really amazing to me that they are inefficient and uh, that that inefficiency, for whatever reason, uh, doesn't really annoy lawmakers. Uh, Lindsay, the study also finds that the Homeland Security approach that's in quotes, the Homeland Security approach also bears responsibility for the rampant growth of racism and fear-mongering in U.S. immigration policy. Lindsay has a focus on Homeland Security led to more racism in the United States, an increase in fascism, white supremacy, Christian nationalism, anti-Semitism, neo-Nazism, and public support of each becoming increasingly acceptable. Has that focus on Homeland Security made our homeland, which is a phrase I hate, uh, more insecure. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So this is something we talk about in the report. Um, The Department of Homeland Security and and the phrase Homeland Security became a part of our lives um, 20 years ago um, as part of the George W. Bush-led response to 9-11. So that's where that comes from. And from very early days, Islamophobia was a huge part of the response. Um, folks may remember Trump's Muslim ban, where he banned people from from particular countries um, from traveling or, or coming to the U.S. Um, but years before that, um, there was a special requirement under the Bush Homeland Security um, program for um, that was also an Islamophobia um, response, and the Islamophobia response was huge. It was across law enforcement, you had the Department of Justice openly targeting mosques. um, And that just kind of went on for years. And then it spiraled. And then finally, in 2015, we have Trump running for president, you know, talking about, you know, Mexicans and all of these sort of racist ideas of immigrants coming to this country. Um, And it is sort of, there's a through line that goes through there where our immigration has always been racist. Our immigration policy has always been racist. Um, But the most recent iteration of that has been through the Department of Homeland Security, through these Islamophobic policies, policies of openly targeting Muslim immigrants, openly targeting immigrants from certain countries. You see it where we've opened our doors to uh, migrants from Ukraine in a way that we never do for migrants from Honduras or El Salvador or Haiti. Um, So Absolutely. This is a big part of it. And then you have the infiltration of Homeland Security and our military uh, by people who have white supremacist affiliations. Um, So there's there's a lot of that out there. Um, And it is, you know, it goes the roots go deep in in U.S. 
culture. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's in, been invented by any of these policies, but these have been the federal vehicle for that racism over the last 20 years. Ashik, uh, the study also finds that the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate, as we were mentioning earlier, of any country in the world. Department of Justice's uh, role in mass incarceration, one-third of the DOJ budget is for prisons, and aid to state and local police forces, 14% of the DOJ budget, undermines its role in federal accountability for racist carceral practices and police killings and brutality that have increasingly sparked soul-searching and protest over the past 10 years. Ashik, when it comes to police and prison reforms, does the DOG ha- DOJ have a uh, conflict of interest problem? Uh, yeah, I think you could probably say that. And a, a kind of scary thing about that category of spending that we lay out in this report is that we're only talking about federal spending when we're talking about uh, law enforcement, like policing and prisons. There's a lot more of that funding at the state and local levels of government, uh, which we don't account for here. So that's actually um, probably a a lot more um, net uh, funding for police and prisons uh, versus what the federal government uh, contributes. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of spending on, on those aspects of what we're calling the militarized budget that are not reflected in the federal budget. Lindsay, the study also finds that uh, programs that provide security and health, housing, education, international affairs, and environmental safety are badly lagging in funding. But Lindsay, isn't the ultimate provider of security the military? Is our greatest source of security the military? What happens when the public understands security is first and foremost dependent upon the military and not on, say, things like well-funded programs in health, housing, education, international affairs, and environmental safety. Right. Um, this is this is a it's a real problem. There's a there is a common understanding that the military equals security, but I think there that's also shifting more more than that you might believe. Um, for one thing, we've seen trust in the military. The military is still the institution in this country that is the most trusted by Americans in polling. But we've seen that trust flagging over the last few years pretty significantly. Um, We've also seen, like I said before, polling that shows that people want to take money from the Pentagon and put it into domestic priorities. So I think there is more understanding that security doesn't just come from the military. Um, But again, it just comes back to what is the military actually buying? You know, when you look at the fact that half of the military budget goes to for-profit corporate contractors, um, that's not buying security. Their interest is not in security. Their interest is in maximizing profit, just like any other corporation. Um, they're, you know, When you look at the fact that um, we've had these 20-year wars that have not measurably added to U.S. security in any way, um, when you look at the fact that the U.S. already outspends Russia by more than 10 to 1, on our military, and yet we still weren't able to deter or stop Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you can just see that we're not getting the kinds of security that we would want for that money. Um, And so we have to understand that we might want to be able to buy all the security in the world with our military spending, but that is not how the world actually works. 
So, Ashik, do you think that more military spending, spending increases the likelihood of war and less diplomatic funding leads to fewer chances at peace? Because your study finds that you, the U.S. spent $16 on the military and war for every $1 that was spent on diplomacy and humanitarian foreign aid. The vast majority of militarized spending was for weapons war in the Pentagon at $920 billion. Only $56 billion was spent for international affairs, diplomacy, and humanitarian foreign aid. So, Ashik, do you think that that uh, you know, discrepancy in spending leads to more of a focus on war and then on peace? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And if, if uh, you look at some of the reasoning that that's often given for increasing this military spending, it's because uh, people who are calling for it kind of just take it as a given that there's going to be war with China or Russia or any number of other countries. And we need to spend more in the United States on a bigger, more powerful military to be able to fight them more effectively. And uh, just taking that as a given, when again the U.S. spends so much more than than all these other co- countries co- like combined, um, and um, like like Lindsay said, um, our massive funding on the military didn't stop Russia from invading Ukraine. And um, you know there are all sorts of analyses about what might have led to different outcomes there, or preempted things. But it a lot of it just co- goes back to how much more has been poured into military funding or building up military formations like NATO, for example, versus the kind of diplomacy that that might have led to longer term outcomes or just, you know, much more investment in common uh, projects like like, you know, fighting climate change or just, uh, you know, giving more resources for development for all these other countries, um, which the U.S. really hasn't been doing compared to military funding. Lindsay, the study also finds that military experts, including Pentagon leaders, have called for divesting from weapons programs that are wasteful, ineffective, unnecessary, or even dangerous. These include, but are not limited to, a program you mentioned earlier, the F-35 jet fighter, the littoral combat ship, and planned reinvestment in nuclear weapons. Savings could reach trillions of dollars over the next several decades. But, Lindsay, how can new war technology be dangerous to our national security? Shouldn't the military always be innovating to stay ahead of perceived enemies? How can any kind of new innovation in being able to execute a war more efficiently or effectively actually be a danger to the people using those weapons? Yeah, well, so all you have to do is think about kind of Cold War um, dynamics where, you know, we step up our military a little bit more, China steps up their military a little bit more, and we step up more and they step up more. And that's exactly the dynamic that you see right now. Our military buildup is not acting as a deterrent to other militaries. It's acting to spur other militaries. So it's really just a completely different reality than the theory that anytime we spend on our military, we're going to be putting somebody else down. Um, And, you know, and that, that also sort of um, comes back to the question about, you know, is military spending more effective than diplomacy spending. Um, So no, because military spending frequently leads to that feedback loop where everybody's arming up. um, And diplomacy, by definition, doesn't do that. You know, it it ratchets that back. And a perfect example right now of dangerous weapons is our reinvestment in nuclear weapons. Um, At the same time that we have seen our nuclear weapons treaties fall away one by one, um, partly 
because we had U.S. administrations like the Trump administration that actively pursued that path. Um, so we have nuclear treaties um, that used to be in effect for decades um, that we no longer have. The world is a more dangerous place as a result of that. And that's also a direct result of investing more in military than it is in diplomacy. And it's a self-reinforcing cycle. Now that we don't have those treaties, we're reinvesting more in nuclear weapons. I've got one last question for each of you. We have been speaking with Lindsay Koshgarian and Ashik Sidi, co-authors of the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies report, The Warfare State, How Funding for Militarism Compromises Our Welfare. You can find out more about the report and find the entire report at nationalpriorities.org. And you can follow National Priorities on Twitter at NatPriorities. I've got one last question for each of you, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response, and lucky you, Ashik, we'll start with you. Can the U.S. only offer either market-based solutions or solutions that are militarized? Is there no alternative but a militarized or market-based solution from the U.S. perspective at this point. And what does that mean for all of us if we can only through uh, fix things through militarization or finding a profit? Oof, that, that is a rough one. <laughs> um, I think, um, you know, there, there are examples in U.S. history of when there was a lot more funding in, you know, the welfare state or social services like the New Deal is probably the biggest example and for the next few decades through that. But that is obviously also a complicated history because World War II happened during that time and the massive war mobilization, which happened with, you know, through the public sector uh, is what, you know, helped recover from the Great Depression and created a lot of jobs and, you know, in some ways really contributed to the social safety net. Um, so that is a, a messy question, like is is the U.S. investment in the public sector dependent on the military? But I think um, at least the question of privatized versus public solutions is something that, um, you know, there there is enough of a history in the U.S. and in plenty of other, you know, um, like first world or, you know, highly industrialized countries where the public sector can do a lot um, and it's not necessarily militarized. So I think um, if we're talking about um, the pressures of climate change, especially like something like a Green New Deal, like massive public investments in um, uh, like all the technologies we would need, all the restructuring of our infrastructure, like those kind of have to happen through the public sector if they're going to happen at scale. So it's, you know, ultimately in the next few decades, it's kind of a matter of survival, which is um, you know, not not something to take lightly, just like the, the solutions to it really can't happen if we're just dependent on gradual market-based solutions. So, um, you know, one would hope that forces a sense of rational urgency, but I think it's it's really just going to come down to politics and, and mass movements to create the pressures that, that shift investment, which is a big part of what allowed major moments of, of social spending and reprioritization in U.S. history, like in the New Deal and in the civil rights era, there were just massive mobilized forces of, of the population that created the pressure that, you know, lawmakers just had to give into or compromise with on some level. 
So, Ashik, I rarely, if ever, do a follow-up to a question from Al because nobody deserves that. But uh, I do want to follow up on something you just said. Do you think that we'll choose survival if there's no provident, profit incentive? Um, I I kind of have to, you know, hope for, for some kind of active hope there. I, I think it, you know, it won't happen by default. I think our our lawmakers are so irrational or driven by irrational motives that, um, you know, we, we certainly can't count on it. Um, just, you know, telling the truth and putting out the right information is obviously not enough. Um, but I think, um, yeah, just everything kind of depends on enough people building the power to, to shift our priorities as a society. And Lindsay, that leads me to a question from hell for you. What do you think will eventually determine the continuance of all these failed programs, their financial unsustainability or their moral or ethical unsustainability? Because your study finds that the failures of U.S. militarism in the 21st century have been vast. They include the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the high suicide rate among military veterans, the faltering U.S. immigration system that relies on deportations and force instead of humane and deliberate immigration management, a failed war on drugs, and a law enforcement system that reinforces legacies of racism and policing and mass incarceration. So what will eventually determine whether these failed programs continue or end? Will it be financial considerations or will it be ethical considerations? Yeah, I, I'm going to go with the ethical considerations. Um, you know, financial financial considerations can can work here and there. We've seen reductions in military spending that, that came about from that um, most recently, just in the 2010s. Um, but they're never big reductions. I think if we really want to see this change, we're going to have to go with the moral ethical route. And even though that sounds like a, a tall order, I have hope for that because we know that young people in this country, going back to your question from hell for Ashik, young people in this country have two things that they're way more skeptical about than older people in this country. And those two of those things are militarism and capitalism. And so I think that it's going to be a lot harder to get the same kind of ideological pass for militarism um, that we've had so far in this country. That's going to get harder and harder in the future as young people come up and uh, as the country grows more diverse um, and the racism component of all of the militarism becomes clearer and less acceptable to people. So I, I think moral and ethical is the way out of this. And, uh, and part of that, part of those morals is the fact that we are neglecting taking care of people by putting money into the military. Um, so that's that's a part of the of the moral piece too. Always surprises me when I have this kind of conversation and then the people I'm talking uh, speaking with at the end all of a sudden start using words like hope. It always shocks me. So I really appreciate it, but I always, I always appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lindsay, for being on the show. Thank you, Ashik, for being on the show. This is absolutely spectacular work. People should not only be checking out your work at the National Priorities Project, but also at the Poor People's Campaign of Dr. Liz, Dr. Reverend Liz Theo Harris. Thank you so much for both being on the show. I truly appreciate it. And you know I will be annoying you in the future to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell if what you just heard from Lindsay and Ashik about 
many of the problems in the United States being self-inflicted by lawmakers who consistently raise the military budget at the cost of everything and everyone else. If that reminded you that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time. That's Central Daylight Time. And this podcast shortly after it, patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are some, how some of our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? So many. And on Patreon, we have... Uh, Lil Drippy Dentist, confirmed dentist, says uh, a new technology crammed full of lithium and cobalt seeping with suffering. Oh, well, that's, mm. well, that's wow. I don't uh, want to know about that uh, either. I, I kind of want to know more about that, but <laughs> I guess I don't want to know about it. I get yeah. it. All right. Because I assume all that's happening in Bolivia. Oh, yeah. Which makes it even worse, right? Because Avo Morales is behind it, and he was, he's evil, mm-hmm. right? We've all discerned totally that. Totally evil. <laughs> And then over on Facebook, we have uh, several responses. Uh, Isel S. Uh, responds, that thing those celebrities were doing over there, tell me less. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? Uh, Scott Price responds, anything about small businesses are the backbone of the economy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Fabio L., Reports anything related to AI, which is said by a billionaire. (laughs) That's that's (laughs) always scary. Adam A. replies, whatever Chicago crime story is being pushed by the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) 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 That's a good one. That's a good one. Hey, look, focus on Gary, okay? Yep. (laughs) <laughs> that reminds me, uh, I was in the Rogers Park like Facebook news group for a while, yeah. and I swear, hardly anybody, it's like half Indiana people just trolling, it seems like. Oh, that's all it is. That's yeah. usually all uh, most of those uh, community websites yeah. are. If you go to go find a small town uh, Facebook group, it's all people who don't live in that town who are trying to force their political ideology yeah. on that town, no matter what how that affects the people it's on the ground there. It's just a, like a stupid psyop. Oh, it's uh, gross. And lastly, um, Riley CD just posts a link to an article from Dayton.com, which I assume is Dayton, Ohio. I assume. Titled, Penises Hung in Yellow Springs Vagina Tree. All right, so let us go into this story a little bit about the penises hung in the vagina tree as we are, uh, we have a little bit extra time this week because we did not do a show on uh, Monday because of Memorial Day. But Riley doesn't want to know more about it. I know, but now we're going to tell Riley more about it and everybody more about it. Because this is hell, guys. A story from Dayton.com with the headline, Penises Hung in Yellow Springs Vagina Tree. Again, a story that Riley C.D. does not want to know anything more about. But here's the rest of the story. The headline is, or the lead paragraph is, sentence I should say. Penises popped up in the Yellow Springs vagina tree and a police officer had to get involved. Really? Did he have to? The quote-unquote, it's in quotes, suspect was a man. That's that entire paragraph. 
paragraph. The suspect <laughs> was a man. <sighs> Thank you for limiting the options on who I will apply my vigilantism against. Police were called April 4th after receiving reports of a Yellow Springs man yelling at passersby. He was also hanging felt penises in the tree in front of Current Cuisine, 237 Xenia Avenue, a police dispatch said. What the hell are they serving at Current Cuisine? That same day, Dayton.com published a story about the tree that was enhanced with felt vaginas. Actually, they are vulvas. Dayton.com, thank you for clearing that up as you don't want to make that kind of mistake. The felt vaginas were created and hung by Viva La Vulva and the Craftism Sisterhood of Yellow Springs to coincide with January's Women's March in Washington. A Yellow Springs police dispatcher said the man hung the felt penises in the tree on the premise that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. (laughs) So that's the entire story we got about the felt penises in the vagina tree, which is actually, Will, a vulva tree. This is why our listeners keep coming back. See? It's the content you all crave. <laughs> you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to Chuck, or to this is hell at, uh, radio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Uh, Will, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff Lee's siege to his Scottish stronghold. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which uh, goes live every week on Thursday morning and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Again, patreon.com slash this is hell. This week on Patreon, I have been rewired again and as we all are repeatedly wired again and again and again we continue to rewire ourselves to accommodate whatever the newest technology that promises convenience in a new sleek package with a must-have colorful design we disengage from the system of plenty as we sleep every night only to wake up and plug ourselves right back into that same freaking nightmare we even demand new ways so we can more easily wire ourselves into that self-made nightmare. All of this wiring and rewiring into the latest soulless platform that chews people up and spits them out like a now tasteless wad of gum seems important, I guess, but when you step back from, from it, away from it, for just a moment, it all looks mostly pointless. And recently I found a better way to wire myself far away from any desktop laptop or smartphone also on patreon time and time again we are asked if we will have this or that novelist on the show to discuss their work of fiction we've always said no to such a request because well to be honest it's a huge pain in the ass to read an entire novel while taking notes to come up with interview questions Unlike nonfiction, listeners may have some understanding of the topic without having ever seen or read even a word of the book. But with fiction, that's just not the case, as the author crafts a world that none of us have ever experienced prior to engaging with their writing. But, in fact, we have had one person on to speak about their novel. 
That was nearly 15 years ago, back on June 7th, 2008. 6708, when we spoke with the author and journalist James Howard Kunstler about his then just published book, World Made by Hand, a novel of the post oil future. So at the time, Jim was a proponent of the idea of peak oil, which suggested the planet would get to peak oil production, and after that, the supply would dwindle, enforcing us all to burn less oil. Of course, we had already been told on the show that the idea of peak oil coming soon was preposterous, as fossil fuel extractors would simply find the stuff elsewhere. And they were, and they did, with tar sands and fracking, as well as oil rigs that can drill in deeper parts of the oceans. Nonetheless, a novel about a post-oil future, for whatever reason, sounded interesting to us, and a number of our listeners enjoyed Jim's writing. We got a lot of people requesting that we have Jim on the show to discuss it. What we did not know at that time is that within less than 10 years, Jim would go all in on Trump, seeing him as a man of strength, despite being from the Republican Party, which Jim saw as nothing more than a bunch of corrupt, corrupt hypocrites. So this week on Patreon, it's all about the only way we should be rewiring ourselves and the only interview we ever did about a piece of fiction, which was written by someone who had fallen for the fiction of peak oil and the fiction of Donald Trump. But the only way you can hear all of that, the only way you can find out the best way to be wired and whether we should interview novelists about their writing or not, is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. What? The Codplast Boom. I'm thinking of getting a Codplast as soon as I find out what one is. As near as I can figure out from asking ChatGPT, Cod pieces are shields to protect the genital region. Codplasty, then, I gather, is surgery to build these shields from human tissue, presumably cartilage. Bone would be too inflexible, I imagine. They say everyone and their sibling has a Codplast these days. That's an exaggeration, of course. But some of This American Life's former female producers have long had codplasts. Jason Bateman and his friends have a codplast factory. Codplasty is an industry. Supposedly, everyone has their favorite codplasts, which makes me feel like the whole world is having weird sex but me. What purpose do codplasts serve? They protect the genitals, but from what? From the coming General Inquisition, I'm sure. If Dave Chappelle, J.K. Rowling, and Marjorie Taylor Greene have their way, we're definitely in for a General Inquisition. I mean, with such bipartisan support from one end of the fear-mongering spectrum to the other, how can they not get their way? I don't think I can afford a Codplast. Sounds expensive. You probably have to go to some Beverly Hills boutique Codplasty clinic. And I'm in a privileged place in relation to the coming General Inquisition. I make no claims about my genitals. I cannot support.
and I have no intention of sharing my genitals in public. So unlike the scary monsters the General Inquisition or Junk Finders General are hunting for, I should have nothing to worry about. If ever I am targeted by junk hunters, I can just buy a jockstrap, an athletic cup, and some super glue, and I should be fine. No need for permanent cartilaginous structure. DIY this bitch. To be honest, all you transphobia mongers out there, I don't see how it's any of your business what my junk look like. I'll thank you to keep your noses out of my crotch, and while you're at it, extend the same courtesy to everyone. Dave Chappelle has trans friends, or has been friendly to trans comics, at least one. In at least one self-serving anecdote, he told in his spiteful special called, I think, I'm black, so I don't understand how I could possibly be punching down. He seems to want to stand his ground against anyone complaining that he's spreading wrong knowledge or perpetuating fears about trans people as if they were like Jews or something. But just because you have a black friend doesn't mean you get to say the N-word as if it belongs to you and not get any pushback. I'm sure Chappelle would agree. And I think he's smart enough to extend the metaphor to his relationship with his trans friend, even if he doesn't understand the actual nuanced science of sexual biology, which he clearly does not. Chappelle parrots the same retrograde pre-20th century distortions J.K. Rowling does. The two are like the cancel culture grievance version of Martha and Snoop. They might consider producing and headlining a rich victims comedy tour. I had a couple friends inform me a few weeks ago that J.K. Rowling operated a women-only domestic violence center in Edinburgh, Scotland, and that somehow this was being seen as an opportunity for attacks, I guess, from members of the trans community who've been offended by her boosting and spreading misinformation about trans women being predators and trans activists trying to take the proprietary territory of feminism away from the natural-born women to whom it solely belongs. The friction so to speak, caused by J.K. Rowling's refusal to abandon and apologize for spreading truly objectionable bigotry has been going on for many years, however. The founding of her women-only domestic violence center was announced last December 12th. Rowling, among other high-minded activities, tweeted sarcastically concerning a phrase... In a trans-inclusive headline, people who menstruate. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Wumben? Wimpund? Woomud? Save it for the rich victim's comedy tour, please. This is thought-provoking because if all people who menstruate are women, as she sarcastically implies... Then if Rowling believes such a definition of womanhood is going to disqualify trans women or even trans men who've experienced domestic violence from possibly seeking services from her women-only center, she's willfully ignorant. And what if a trans man who menstruates comes to her for shelter from domestic violence or a masculine-appearing trans person of whatever gender? Rowling has taken care of that eventuality. She makes a big point of funding the center herself. She takes no donations. She is privatizationally in charge. She decides who is a woman and who is not. 
Is it her own little turf fiefdom? Is she the insane thane of Edinburgh? Whatever the case, and it's a complex case, it must be admitted, these friends of mine had chosen to lean on this talking point, a very recent one, scarcely six months old, which has not much to do with JK's anti-trans slime-slinging the terrorized members of the trans community have had the temerity to speak up about for more than a half a decade. So it seems to me and I could be mistaken that these cis-hetero gentlemen had some argumentative stake in supporting JK's right to air her bigotry, and it is indeed bigotry, really destructive, dangerous bigotry. I have a few other friends who have succumbed to the fear-mongering and come down against the vocal trans community for overdoing it, overreaching, choosing to be offended, complaining too much, getting people fired, ruining people's lives, erasing women from the class of those in need of directed health care and legal protections, and all manner of crimes, and I'm beginning to see it as a bad case of anti-woke backlash from the left. When two smart men come at me having cherry-picked a recent news item, at best to impugn the vehemence of those offended, at worst, to attack my anger or that of trans people against an outrageously wealthy author who's used her fame partly as a pulpit from which to mock and attack trans identities and trans concerns, it's hard not to see their focus as reactionary in the conservative sense. JK has been vocally insensitive and ignorant about biological sex differences, except in the most simplistic, rigid, archaic sense, which she calls the truth. She routinely belittles and patronizes the concerns of trans activists, tweeting, for example, I'd march with you if you were discriminated against on the basis of being trans, as if trans rights haven't always been under attack and trans people aren't right now being discriminated against all while sporting the guise of maternalistic concern. In 2019, Rowling, after having established a track record of liking and boosting anti-trans tweets, rushed to tweet support in aid of blatant British transphobe Maya Forstatter, implying not too subtly that trans activists had forced her out of a job for stating that sex is real. Forstatter was an accountant for a charity and routinely tweeted anti-trans tweets. At one point, 150 anti-trans tweets over a period of seven days. Among them, some misgendering a trans woman banker and derogating her as just a part-time cross-dresser. That is hard to see as anything other than a campaign of public harassment and humiliation. The insane barrage of vile tweets made her co-workers uncomfortable. They complained that Forstatter was creating a hostile work environment. She refused to desist when requested to do so by management. When her contract expired, the charity declined to renew it. She sued for wrongful termination and lost. She was not taken to court, as at least one article disingenuously put it. She brought the case to court and she most certainly was not forced out for stating that sex is real, as Our Lady of the Broomsticks would have it. Read the judge's remarks regarding Forstatter's proud, gender-critical stance of harassment at the fanlore.org wiki page J.K. Rowling and Transphobia. So much for J.K. Rowling and what she esteems as truth. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. What a terrifying possibility. 
But could it be fear-mongering? Race, for example, is recognized as a social construct, at least by those who aren't emphatically and proudly racist. Does such recognition somehow erase the lived reality of people of color? How does acknowledging the complex reality of sex differences and the socially constructed nature of gender threaten a stunningly wealthy author who rules her own private castle Dunsinane? To defend her against a war levied at her by trans activists without understanding or acknowledging the actual hypocrisy and malice at issue, malice that, who knows, could be part of the motivation for any number of her public statements and actions, almost gives humanist cover to anti-humans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for whom fear-mongering about trans rights dovetails nicely with her QAnon-style anti-Semitism and groomer rhetoric. It certainly offers her unpleasant white Christian ammo sexual chauvinism a foothold in a place where no such bigotry should be tolerated. Now that the Tennessee legislature has literally made people presenting as trans and genderqueer illegal, while no state or county or unincorporated municipality has come even close to making outrageous wealth or outspoken trans-exclusionary retro-feminism illegal, maybe some hearts and minds will see fit to open. Let's get one thing straight amid all the twistedness of current discourse. There is no horseshoe diagram here where the extreme left meets the extreme right at a conjunction of extremisms. It looks more like the left sliding toward the even-handed, can't we all just get along middle and slipping like the polar vortex over a boundary into the territory of the right. No one consciously wants that, but conscious, rational positions might not be the motivation. It may have its roots far deeper in more atavistic fears, or it may stem from a desire to avoid conflict, which, to my mind, in the case of wealthy pulpit wielders, is misplaced. And so it begins to make sense to me why former This American Life women and Jason Bateman would want to acquire codplasts. Even if it's prohibitively expensive, codplasty might just represent the last line of defense against the junk hunt being ginned up by the genital inquisition, like the people of World War II Denmark wearing yellow stars to confound the Nazis. Your average person seems to have so much trouble with simple pronouns, it's no wonder the appearance of a butch-looking female in a bathroom might cause them to lose their dookie. At least these pearl clutches are in a bathroom, where there are receptacles for all that stuff they're losing. Or even when a non-trans woman born genetically unique tries to compete in the Olympics, but is sniffed around the crotch by junk hunters. It's sad that it's up to the victims of the fears and confusion of the junk hunters to protect their privacy by getting codplasts, when really, by all rights, it should be up to the people losing their poop to go to a Beverly Hills clinic and get diaperplasty to catch what they keep losing because of their own sick imaginations. Codplasts seem to keep proliferating, their numbers increasing exponentially, and as long as no one's complaining about them, there seems to be no trouble on that score, but I'm not sure why it's so quiet on the codplasty front. With all the concerns the junk hunters have about who has what genitals, it's strange to me that I don't hear anyone complaining about all the codplasts. It's almost as if they don't know what the hell's going on! This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So are codplasts like shoe sizes? There's a European version and an American version. Do you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, let me, let me say this. Do I know? No, I don't know. I don't know. But I assume. Come on. 
Oh, why wouldn't it be like that? Also, I want to. They would have to. I want to mention, measure in stone or millimeters. Right, exactly, or rods, something along those lines. <laughs> or rod. Oh, Chuck. Yes. You know, uh, calling a vulva a vagina is like calling your face your throat. Yeah, they're pretty close. <laughs> hey, uh, I ought to slap your throat. <laughs> <laughs> that used to be a big thing in my uh, junior high school, my middle school. Uh, dudes would just go around punching each other in the throat. Oh, that's good practice for uh, kung fu movies. Yeah, and uh, people often die that way. Uh, yeah, I was often the victim of it. I eventually became the perpetrator, which ended me becoming the victim of it. Uh, I just want to point out your J.K. Rowling impersonation. It's a lot like your uh, your Margaret Thatcher impersonation. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's also a lot like your Queen Elizabeth impersonation, yeah. and the only one of those three people I've ever actually heard a recording of speaking would be Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> so, is Margaret Thatcher your default British woman accent? No, my default British woman accent is Graham Chapman from Monty Python. Oh, very dress. good call. You're absolutely <laughs> correct. Oh, actually, oh, I'm sorry, Terry Jones. Who yes, has been on our show by the way twice. And, Twice. And I asked him as a question from hell, how does it feel to be the only person from Monty Python nobody's ever heard of? <laughs> Which was a great question from him. All right, Jaffe. Until next time. What do you mean? Are we up against the clock? Not really, but until next time. Can I rub up against the clock? Can I rub my vulva up against the clock? <laughs> You're disgusting. So are you, but I'm beautiful. And stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. The person uh, will please remind us <laughs> what is this week's question from Hell. Share with us the rest of our listeners' answers because the f- person with our favorite answer is going to win their choice of This Is Hell merchandise, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. So what's the question from Hell, and do we have any more responses? This week's question from Hell is what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? And it appears our listeners were very punctual. Uh, We don't have any coming in under the wire. All right, so help me choose this week's winner, Will, uh, Discord. (laughs) Uh, Kim G said, I need to know Zilch more about the Silicon Valley rich dude and his son's blood unless his face cracks open and a cryogenic head pops out of his neck. (laughs) Always strong ones. Uh, David S., yes, uh, also jumping on the Elon bandwagon, uh, including the news story you posted, which is a news story about a woman losing her hat in a tree. Any news story involving a bromance, especially the burgeoning one between Elon Musk and Ron DeSantis. Uh, Let's see, which other ones? Uh, Sarah S. sent a link to a CNN story with the headline, A man has been arrested after shooting his roommate during a fight about eating the last hot pocket, police in Kentucky say. Uh, let's see, which other ones do I like? Uh, Mark C. saying, any news about a primary battle between an anti-vax conspiracy theorist and an emotionally abusive huckster who accrued a fortune spouting pseudo-religious nonsense? And wait, who's that other guy running again? I also like Little Drippy Dentist saying, a new technology crammed full of lithium and cobalt seeping with suffering. Scott P. saying, anything about small businesses are the backbone of the economy. Adam A., whatever Chicago crime story is being pushed by the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, SLS, that things those celebrities were doing over there, tell me less. Any of those really stick out to you, Will? Um, 
I'm kind of partial to the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. I am too. Adam A., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Just send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, and we will get it in the mail to you post-haste, or just come by during office hours, and we'll give you, I think we have all the merchandise here right now, so we could just give you what you want during This Is Hell office hours, which happen every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. Congratulations. My answer to this week's question from Elle, what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? Is, uh, well, there's something about a guy named Murdaugh and a murder trial. I don't know, and that's the way I want to keep it because every trial news story seems like a way for the establishment media to legitimize our justice system that is clearly based on vengeance and not actually stopping the real causes of crime or doing a very good job at solving crime. So yeah, anything about crime trials, I generally ignore, especially when they involve rich people or celebrities. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Will, who are our scheduled and confirmed guests for next week? Next week, we have economic historian Trevor Jackson, who will discuss his Baffler Magazine article, Overproduction and Its Discontents, Capitalism's Inherent Predilection for Excess, as well as his more recent New York Review of Books piece, The Price of Crypto, despite its boosters' frequent references to democracy and freedom, Cryptocurrency reflects a radical marketization of politics in which major players can rewrite the rules as needed. I'm going to have to subscribe to the New York Review of Books to get that article. So in the very near future, Will, you and everybody on the staff will now have a login to the New York Review of Books. Excellent. Because I can't believe I have to pay for that. All right, go ahead. Uh, returning to This Is Hell, contributing writer at The Intercept, Nick Terse, who returns <laughs> to uh, discuss his new investigation, Kissinger's Killing Fields. Transcripts of Kissinger's calls reveal his culpability. Really? Hmm. Hammer and Hank. Always good to see <laughs> Hammer you. and Hank. Still alive. Yeah. Go figure. Somehow. Uh, I bet he has a blood boy. Um, <laughs> He's got to. And we will be speaking with a guest uh, suggested to us by Chris Busby at Portland, Maine's alternative publication, The Bollard. Chris wrote to suggest that we have on the show Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and the 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. I have no idea who that 19th Century Woman is. I'm going to go with Carrie Nation. What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, that works. (laughs) Also, we will have the return of The Past Inside the Present with Sebastian Vupper, a new edition of This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi, Jeff Dorchin with another moment of truth. We are hoping to have the return of Kat Jarvanen as a producer here on the show who's had to take some time off for family reasons. A huge thank you to everyone who works on the show. Kat, Dan Kugler, Will Ippen. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin, Ronaldo Magaldi, Sebastian Vupper, Dan Hill. Thanks to Richard Norwood for filling in on Tuesday. Thanks to Alexander Jerry and Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when I will reveal why we need to rewire ourselves and the best way to do so, plus the only interview we ever did in our 27 years on air concerning a piece of fiction. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palm, palms, let's say plural palms, towards the sky, 
focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>